but it but that's one thing that I think connects as you say this broader idea of race right where if you look in Brazil if you look in you know Cameroon if you look in you know the Netherlands or Jamaica right black people seem to always be framed in the same way right? like there's no it's a very lazy uh, form of commentating right that is just um, you know oh they're fast so watch out for this player because she's fast right like instead of oh no she's tactically sound right her technique is is great you know so like there's there's just a very lazy sense of commentating when it comes to when it comes to black athletes and black and black uh, soccer players And welcome back to the Black Athlete Podcast. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness and the forthcoming Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jay Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lou. Thanks, man. It's been a while. I'm, gl- I'm glad we're doing this. I know. We got a special guest. You want to introduce our special guest for today? Man, back-to-back episodes with special guests. Today's guest is Dr. Jermaine Scott. Uh, Dr. Scott is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Virginia's Carter G. Witzer Institute for African American and African Studies. His research interests include the culture politics of sports, black politics, black diaspora studies, and post-colonial theory. You might have read his work on in Black Perspectives and also on ESPN's Undefeated you can follow him on Twitter at It's Jermaine. And let me just say about that undefeated column, I use it in my black athletes class at the beginning of class uh, when we talk about black soccer and a diaspora. And let me also say something very positive and awesome about Jermaine. And that is I've been on a panel with him. And when you say 20 minutes, he primarily sticks to 20 minutes. So that, hey, if you're looking for someone to be on a panel, go get you Jermaine Scott. Oh man, that's great. That's great. <laughs> welcome, Jermaine, man. Come on. Hey, man. Welcome to the pod, the Black Athlete Podcast. You know, as as Lou said, that's a fantastic bio. Jermaine, did you let me get this straight for our audience and for ourselves as well? You just finished your, your dissertation, right? You just defended and, and graduated, right? Correct? Yes, correct. Yeah, it actually sounded really good when uh, you said Dr. Jermaine Scott. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, congrats. So we ought to make sure we give you a big congratulations on this podcast because I know how hard that is. So welcome, welcome to the brotherhood uh, <laughs> of, of of black uh, scholars with PhDs. It's a long yeah. line, and so we are welcoming you with open arms by putting you on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And let me just say, very few who have done a PhD doing like something in sports, right? African American studies or in history. Uh, coming out with a dissertation on sports. So that's even bigger. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So Jermaine, for our audience, why don't you uh, give us a little bit, uh, you know, about your, your work and what you what you work on and your scholarship and particularly your dissertation and your future endeavors. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you again to, to both of you for inviting me to be on the podcast. Um, so as you said, you know, I recently defended my dissertation, uh, Black Teamwork, Football, Diaspora, Politics, and it really looks at the ways in which Black footballers throughout the African diaspora are challenging um, the racial constructs of, of football, um, in the, really in the second half of the 20th century. So 
I'm starting with uh, the Confederation of African Football in the 1950s and 1960s and the way they boycotted um, the, the qualifying rounds of the 1966 World Cup. The reason they boycotted the, the qualifying rounds is because at the time, FIFA only allowed one team from Africa, Asia, and the Oceania region to participate in the, 19th, in, in the World Cup. One team out of all three of those regions. Um, and, and so the Confederation of African Football said, no, this is crazy and it's racist and it's not fair. Um, and if you don't change it, then we're just going to have to boycott. Um, and that's exactly what they did. And of course, FIFA fined them, you know, 500, you know, 5,000 Swiss francs and all of these things about, you know, punishment, um, you know, for protesting racism, right? Uh, and so um, that happens, that's, this is happening in the 50s and 60s. Um, and of course, it, it, it changes over time um, with new with new changes in, in FIFA leadership. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, the persistent um, efforts by the Confederation of African Football to be to be represented um, on the world stage. And then I go into um, the Howard University soccer team uh, in the 1970s and the ways in which they are challenging the Americanization of soccer during this time, which really, which really emerges in the 60s. Um, so you, you have organizations like the AYSO, the American Youth Soccer Organization, um, really trying to push this idea of an American form of soccer. Um, and of course, this is racially coded as whitening soccer. Um, and so they you know, they, they, they use language to talk about soccer as the sport for the nuclear family, right? Um, they, they talk about, you know, soccer as the safe sport, right? Juxtaposed against a sport like football and basketball, where it is becoming increasingly uh, more black uh, in, the, in the late 60s and 70s. And so Howard University goes on and wins the NCAA championship in 1971. The NCAA strips that championship away from the, from them because of some you know really obscure uh, rule that uh, Howard University apparently uh, broke and then they go on and win it again in 1974 so it's a it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a great story about redemption um, of course uh, ESPN uh, did a did a documentary short on on this story um, and again, it's, it's, it's really thinking about, I think it's a good story to think about Blackness at HBCUs, the kind of the range and diversity of Blackness at HBCUs, right? Because the soccer team is composed of Caribbean folk and African folk. And so, you know, what does it mean for, uh, uh, you know, African-Americans at Howard University really rallying behind um, a team that was, quote unquote, you know, labeled as the foreigner team. Right. So I'm thinking about all these ideas about solidarity and, and, uh, and, and, and black politics at, at uh, HBCU during this time. And then I go on to um, Brazil in Sao Paulo, where I'm looking at the Corinthians democracy, which is essentially um, Corinthians football club, a, uh, the Corinthians team and players on the team led by players like Socrates, uh, Vladimir and Casa Grande. Um, they are really making an effort to. Um, democratize football under uh, military dictatorship in Brazil, and so um, large in, in that in that history in that story, the the black politics seems to get left out. Um, 
in the story. And so I was interested in what the black players were, were, were fighting for, right. And what they were trying to argue and, um, the 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 ways in which they were trying to generate a sense of black politics through this idea of Corinthians democracy through football, right? And then I go on to uh, the Netherlands in the 1990s, um, and I'm looking at players like uh, uh, Patrick Kluivert and Clarence Seedorf, um, uh, you know, Rude Hullet, uh, you know, Frank Reichard, right? And all of these players and how they are really challenging the racial discrimination. Edgar Davids, of course, and uh, how they are challenging the racial discrimination they are experiencing both on the national team and at Ajax, the Ajax Football Club. Um, and so all of these chapters are really, an, it's really an effort to think about how football, right, has become a space for Black politics in the second half of the 20th century. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. No, it was a great, it was a fun, it was a fun project to write. You know, I mean, I played football growing up, you know, for the, like, you know, from the age of four till about, you know, my junior year in high school. Um, and then I really started to focus on the band and then I went to college and I went to FAMU, Florida a University and, you know, played in the marching band there. And so it was a great, you know, it was kind of a transitional phase, but, you know, football has always been central to who I am as a person and, and, and who I am, at, who I am as, a, as a sports fan, really. This is you're on the right podcast um, because uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna toot my own horn here because uh, as a soccer player <laughs> do it do it I gotta I gotta toot my own horn uh, first of all I'm as a fantastic um, uh, dissertation in many ways as a person who's belated who grew up playing soccer played it at the University of Maryland um, big ups uh, fellow you know the, the current national champion University of Maryland uh, <laughs> I gotta put that in um, <laughs> I started that. Okay, that's probably an overstatement, but anyways, um, but yeah, no, I really love I love what you've done, and these are all kinds of interesting questions that I grew up thinking about in terms of like race and soccer, especially in the American and the international co- uh, context. I'll say this, man that 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 Dutch team in the in the in the nineties, man, that was like my favorite squad because when you're growing up and you're black and you're looking for role models about how to play and what you want to be like and and just flair and style steel and style. That team had all of it. Um, you know, I wanted to grow dreadlocks. I'm jealous. I got a baldy now, so you know, <laughs> struggle. Um, but yeah, so I, I, this is I this is a project that is that I didn't know I needed in my life. So I am super excited. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. You know, it's you know for you know for me and for you know I'm, I'm sure you as well and a lot of other black kids playing <clears throat> soccer in the U.S. in particular. <clears throat> this was our first moment. Excuse me. <clears throat> This was our first moment to really think about race on a, on a critical level, right? Because for me personally, I was one of two or three black players on the team, right? And then all of a sudden I was getting called white, you know, for playing soccer. I'm like, but, I, you know, everyone in the world plays soccer and a lot of black people around the world play soccer. So what's going on here? Why is it? Why is this different in the U.S.? Right. So this is kind of the first time I started thinking critically about race and, and sports, Um so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a project that's very close to me. And, you know, again, I mean, I really had, I really enjoyed writing and doing the research, you know, for this dissertation. Oh, it sounds fantastic. And it's appropriate timing, right? Because right now we're in the midst of the Women's World Cup, the Gold Cup. Um, what else is the Copa America is happening all in the same kind of, you know, African Cup of Nations is, is Afri- African Cup of Nations is happening in the same cup of this, this, 
current block of time in the summer. Um, but we want to talk a little bit. We want to focus a little bit on the Women's World Cup because uh, in the last week or so, um, race has come to the forefront of the Women's World Cup. Um, uh, uh, in the lead up to the World Cup, there was all this kind of positive press about how um, what we think of as the 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 South, right? You know, the the, the global South has now uh, made these advancements in women's rights, and this is being reflected in women's soccer. Um, but what we also seen is the lack of support. Uh, for the women's game vis a vis the men's game, especially from many of these same kinds of federations. Uh, most notably, you know, Jamaica let the women's team basically go uh, dormant until <laughs> uh, until Bob Marley's daughter. Yes, yes. Right. So that, decided pers- decided to personally fund a team. Right. So this yeah. is the kind of thing. And so help 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 me and our listeners um, think a little bit about the way that these funding um situations have kind of uh, shaped the Women's World Cup, especially for the Global South? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, first, first, I do want to shout out, you know, scholars like Brenda Elsie um, and Joshua Nadell, who just, you know, came out with a really great book, uh, Futbolera, which is really looking at uh, women's sports in Latin America, history of women's sports in Latin America. And so they really do a, a fantastic job of thinking through this history. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, scholars like Shireen Ahmed and Amir Rose Davis and all of these uh, great scholars on sports and race and gender are doing great, are doing really great work. And particularly now in this moment, you know, they're just fantastic, you know, really on Twitter. I mean, they're just going hard on Twitter and it's just an incredible, an incredible moment. But <clears throat> to get specific, I mean, you know, the history of women's football, you know, is in Latin America, specifically in kind of the global South more broadly, right? We have to think about the this kind of uh, this kind of you know machisto culture, right, of, of football in the global South, where you know uh, women are not quote unquote supposed to be playing football, right? Um, it's not it's not it's not womanly enough, right? And so there's all there's always these conversations about oh well, if women play football then. There's a there's a there's a fear that they're going to become lesbians, right? Or there's mm-hmm. you know all of these all of these kind of sexist discourses that relegate women to the sidelines, right? And say that women should not be on the field and should not be playing a quote unquote man's game, right? And so this is reflected in you know as you say this is reflected in the support or the lack of support uh, from these federations. I mean you look at you know you look at a country like Argentina. Right where football is, I mean, football is um, essentially religion throughout, you know, throughout Latin America, you know. But with the men's team, obviously, and their success, I mean, that's kind of debatable right now. But you know, <laughs> we look at you know Argentina, and you know, as you said, that there's this you know this rising you know women's movement going on in Argentina, and and football has taken center stage recently, right? Where they now, for the first time in <laughs> for the first time in history, they have a professional. Women's soccer league, right? And why? Why is this happening? You know, two thousand and nineteen, um, and then of course, you know, teams like Chile, right, where there's just a, a, a really horrible um, record of support, right, from the Chilean uh, football federation. Um, you know, and again, we have, and this plays out on the field where you see there's these major disparities between a team like Chile and a team like the U S right. Where, you know, you know, players from Chile are, are not professional players. 
right? And they're playing against, you know, professional superstars, right? So, you know, all of these things are so heightened uh, in, in, in women's football, particularly because of this culture that, that says women should not be playing football, right? And it, is, and it is passed down from the top, right? And so, you know, again, I mean, you mentioned Jamaica, right? We can talk about, you know, Cameroon and South Africa, Nigeria, you know, even the, even the response from, from the Cameroon, um, sorry, not the Cameroon Federation, but the, the Confederation of African Football, uh, the, the head of the women's department of the Confederation of African Football, right? They're calling for punishments against Cameroon. Right. Right. So, you know, so there's, so there's right. this broad lack of support for women's football and how women's football is supposed to be represented. Right. Um, so, yeah, there, I mean, I mean, we can get into Cameroon, but it's just it's just a really horrible kind of sense of um, just mistreatment. Right. Just a lack of financial, moral um, and just popular support for for the women's game. It should be noted too, right, that this mistreatment is, like you said, that this is a kind of lack of, I don't want to say lack of professionalism, but the lack of support has not allowed women to become professional soccer players in large swaths of the uh, of the global south. But at the same time, even in the United States, which is a forerunner because of Title IX and, and women's equality, uh, it still does it still had to sue for equal pay, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, there was an article, I believe, in the New York Times or the Post this week that was discussing um, about the fact that over the, you know, the big ex- explanation that the U.S. Federation has always used was, well, the men bring in more revenue. But over the last two or three years, women's soccer has, has outgrossed men's soccer. Uh, and so they're standing on this strong footing. So even when we look at the best case scenario, right, we're seeing kind of tremendous amounts of inequality. Yes. Um, and I think that's an important kind of uh, uh, context that we see this that that we're still talking about a uh, a scale that has shifted all the way in in a direction towards inequality. Um, and I think the other piece of this is, as you pointed out, that that where Latin America, I think uh, there is a discussion. The way we talk about men's soccer in some way gets carried over into women's soccer, right? And racial stereotypes and the cultural stereotypes, uh, regional stereotypes get are become simplistic explanations for um, the ways in which uh, commentators, uh, sports mm-hmm. writers, fans begin to observe the game, uh, and so. Even though you see this this inequality in Latin America, Latin American soccer is given a certain kind of flair. It's given a certain kind of skill. Uh, exception, you know, the, the the commentators talk about. Look at the skill of Brazil. Look at the skill. Even though they lack, uh, they may not be in the same class per se as the United States. Right. Right. But then when it comes to but but when it comes to race, like when we think about the African nations, right? All these these African teams, whether it be uh, Cameroon or Nigeria or what we think of the broader diaspora, Jamaica, they are not given the benefit of the doubt, right? They are not seen as skilled players, but skill, seen as athletic um, um, players. And so, give us a sense of that history. And do you see this in your own work and in, in, in other places, whether it's in Brazil or or in in the Netherlands? And how does this fit into this broader understanding of of race and soccer? 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 fascinating to watch. It's not even fascinating. It's actually really frustrating to watch. Like, you know, like sometimes I just have to turn the whole game on mute and just watch it for my just watch it for myself because the commentating is so steeped in these racial stereotypes, and it really is really rooted in this idea, this separation of the mind and body, right? That that black people um, are are purely physical, right? That that we don't have the mental capacity to think. Right, that we don't, we're not, we're not uh, tactically acute. Right, we don't know anything about technique. We don't know anything about teamwork. Right, that we're just all out there for the flair. We're all out there. Um, you know, our only value is in our speed. Right, our pace. Right, and so, you know, this, this, again, these racial stereotypes is rooted in this idea of the separation between the mind and the body. Right, I mean, Grant Wall, who who writes for Sports Illustrated, just had a nice little, you know, three minute uh, little video on this. Right. Um, but it, but that's one thing that I think connects, as you say, this broader idea of race, right? Where if you look in Brazil, if you look in, you know, Cameroon, if you look in, you know, the Netherlands or Jamaica, right? Black people seem to always be framed in the same way. Right? Like there's no, it's a very lazy, uh, form of commentating, right? That is just, um, you know, oh, they're fast. So watch out for this player because she's fast, right? Like instead of, oh no, she's tactically sound, right? Her technique is, is great. You know, so like there's, there's just a very lazy sense of commentating when it comes to, when it comes to black athletes and black and black uh, soccer players. And it's, you know, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just really kind of uh, frustrating. Actually, you know, I I don't want to, go too hard but it's just frustrating to hear the same script it's really like a script that someone that they're given that okay these are the key words that you need to talk to or that you need to use when talking about black players um and it's just and it's worldwide it's not it's not specific to a, a certain country it's not specific to a certain region but whenever you see black players these are how they are are, are talked about and characterized right through their kind of more physical through the more physical rather than mental uh, value. Right, right. Um, I guess my my question on that is um, when I was reading, you know, soccer scapes, African soccer scapes by uh, I would say Peter Leggi. One of the points he brings up, like this, there's this very like kind of African style of play, right? This Africanization style of play, and part of it is the individual, right? And and how you play because of I guess let's see, it's been it's been a couple semesters since I read it. Uh, but but the way you play because of the way the game's shaped in your in your region, maybe it's because there's not a lot of space, or maybe there's a lot of people playing at the same time, and and you keep that ball with you, right? Uh, because once you give it up, you're not giving it back. Is that is that part of what's going on? Yeah, I mean that's part of it, right? I mean, there in in, in, a, in a sense, this kind of individual piece of 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 black footballers and kind of this black style of play is is twofold right because on the one hand you can say that you know oh well i mean exactly what you said right that in a way the conditions of play require a certain uh like a different style of play right that that might look like more individual style of play um and then but on the flip side you know one can easily say that one can one can make that a negative right and say oh this person is being selfish right this person is, is is not a team player Right. But then we also have to think about, you know, again, soccer does not exist. Football does not exist in a vacuum. Right. And these players are have real lives. Right. And so, 
you know, when we think about Black life and this kind of constraint of movement, this constraint of um, freedom, if you will, right? Football becomes a space to express oneself, right? Individually, right? And collectively. Um, the problem is, is that commentators take that desire to move freely as, again, they take it as a negative. They say that, oh, this person is not a team player. This, you know, this person is a very selfish uh, ball player. And, um, you know, they don't, again, going back to the, the split between the mind-body split, they're not thinking tactically um, in, the, in the team context, right? They're not thinking technically in a team context. They're just worried about the flair and the, and the, and the kind of um, spectacular style of play, right? Um, when really these spectacular styles of play are really rooted in histories of the repression of movement, right? The repression of, of Black bodies, right? So what happens when, you know, you have a Black player that's given a ball in a kind of an open space, right? Of course they're going to, you know, of course they're going to perform in a certain way, right? And, and, and move in a certain way, right? Um, but it just, it, it goes back down to the kind of racist structure of, of sports commentating that just dominates the game, you know? Let me let me ask a build on something that you said in this in this thing and think about it from the looking at these Western teams, right? Like whether it's the United States or France or Canada. One of the things I kind of notice is, are we and maybe I'm misreading this and not paying as close of attention. Are we seeing kind of positional segregation oh, really? um, um, at by race uh, in these? Like I, I tend to see like all the black players play like three positions right <laughs> like right like they either play in the back as uh, as defenders especially on the outside where they can use speed as outside backs right. they're either playing uh up top right um and then occasionally they're in the center back because they're kind of big like again you could be powerful but you know the one position that they you don't see them is that you don't see them in that playmaking midfield uh you don't mm -hmm. see them often in the number 10 um, you, you don't see them in um, uh, in that in that role where you're distributing the ball, spraying all over the field. Uh, the role that I that that um, that I when I came up was Carlos Valderrama. Like he never left the center circle, right? Like he, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you don't see very many black players in the West, whether it's male or female. And so I, I was watching the game the other day, and I was watching the U.S. team, and I'm like, wow, they don't. You know, Crystal Dunn plays in the back. Uh, McDonald plays up top. Um, you know, they have a, another sister that plays on the outside. I think she plays outside, uh, outside midfield, I think, or forward. And it's just like, I'm like, where are they at in the middle of the field? And so it's an interesting kind of dynamic. And this is something that we, am I meeting this wrong or am I, am I, are my eyes? No, you're, you're spot on. Right. And it's, it is very similar to American football, right. Where, you know, this is, this is the, this is the discourse around black quarterbacks, right. That mm -hmm. black quarterbacks don't have the mental capacity to, administer and organize the team uh, and distribute the ball, right? And um, which, which, you know, obviously uh, the quarterback is seen as the, you know, the, the field general, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. um, this, this, is, this is very similar in, in, in football, in soccer, right? Where the central midfielder player, right? The number 10 or maybe the number six, right? The, mm -hmm. Basically the spine of the team. Um, they are often not there, right? They're often relegated to the outside, which is the wing positions. And these wing positions are, are known for, you know, are the, you know the, the best players for the wing position are the fastest players, right? Because they're able to get up and down the field, spread the field out, which is spreading out the opponent's defense, right? And so 
again, but the commentators don't talk about black players in these positions through a technical framework. Okay, they're only talking about these players because of their faith. So you have a player like Crystal Dunn who started out up front right. and then moved her to the back, right? And so there's this, there's this, again, there's this, I don't want to say disposability, but exchangeability of, of black players where you can kind of put them in certain positions because, because of their physical attributes, right? And so, you know, as you mentioned, right, the, the, the kind of center defender is seen as the more physical, you know, more body, you know, it can, it can, uh, it can, you know, put a body on you. It can get more physical with you. You know, if there's any danger in the back, you can just clear it out with one kick. You don't have to think about dribbling or you don't have mm-hmm. to think about passes. You can just get rid of the ball. Right. Um, the same thing up top, you know, the, the, the striker, right. You're just using your speed to just run and blast the shot. Right. With the kind of, Again, it gets framed as very a very physical and bodily position rather than a thinking and mental position, right? Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of the same ways we see this in you know in American football, you know, this is happening in, in soccer, right? It's, it's kind of again, it's it's almost like a script. It's really almost like a script where these coaches and these administrators don't even don't even entertain the possibility of um of of these central positions now you do have a player like uh, on the men's national team like uh, weston mckinney who, who plays more centrally right but again on the on the kind of large scale right thinking structurally and thinking racially right absolutely black players are segregated into, into certain positions based off of racial stereotypes absolutely oh no it's good and i'm, I'm glad you brought up weston mckinney just on the side because I, I watched him the other night and he's He's fantastic, um, and 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 uh, my nephews were really getting excited about watching him pass the ball all over the pitch. Um, but he's a rarity at, at that level, especially in the U.S. context. Yes, yes, for sure, for sure. And then um, understanding all this about racial stereotypes, and, and it kind of sounds like what we call stacking, right? In, in U.S. sports, how how big was it to have someone like a Brianna Scurry out there uh, as a goalie? What is it about what twenty years ago? Yeah. Um, yeah. And do we get up to a point where we get the next Brianna Scurry um, uh, in in U.S. soccer? Yeah, I mean, I mean, right now we have uh, Adriana French, right? Who's who's the, who's a, who's a black goalkeeper, right? For the, yeah, for the, she's the backup, right? Yeah, well, yeah, she's the backup, yeah. right? She, yeah, yeah, but um, you know, if you know, hopefully in the future she'll 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 gain this starting position. But I mean, Brianna Scurry, gosh, I mean, I remember her so vividly. I just, I mean. Just, just the idea of having someone that looks like you represented on the national team—a huge, huge moment, right? Um, but Brianna Scurry is also very interesting because she is very candid about the structures of U.S. soccer and how they discriminate structurally against Black folks, right? Black mm-hmm. boys and girls, right? Where this whole—it's it's a whole pay-to-play system, right? Where you know, so yes. people would say, oh, this has nothing to do with race. It's about class. Well, you know, as Stuart Hall says, you know, you know, race is the modality through which class is lived. Right. And so, you know, when we think about the structure of U.S. soccer, where you're paying thousands and thousands of dollars to just get on just to I mean, it doesn't even have to be like a, a super great team, just like a mediocre team. You're paying <laughs> a lot of money, you know, say, to, to, to join these teams, you know, um, and of course, you know, black people don't have, you know, have structurally been um, excluded from these spaces, right? And so Brianna Scurry is a personal hero just because not, I mean, not only of, of her dominance on the pitch and in goal, right, but of, of also her politics, right? She's very, very candid about, about what's going on in, in, in uh, soccer culture in the U.S. 
Before we get too long into the program and, and, and before we get towards the end, I do want to spend a, a few minutes talking about this Cameroon because, uh, you oh, know, yeah. the England game the other day in which uh, Cameroon almost staged a protest at the VAR, come, at some at two of the VAR decisions, the video review decisions in soccer uh, that were um you know controversial i i rewatched it ahead of this and and i'll say this in the lead up i'll say that i think that they got the the calls right for england i thought that the goal that cameroon scored at the end of the first half was probably a goal um i feel like it's too hard to score goals for us to be looking at offsides by a half a leg um and i feel like that there is so much frustration about the way that they went into the game believing that they were not going to get a fair shot, and it was reinforced in some of those decisions. Um, but the debacle, as you pointed out, people were saying that they should be fined. Uh, the coach of the English team said that was not soccer, that was a disgrace. Um, you know, how, how should we, who are critical scholars of race and sports, how should we think and our listeners think about this, the, the, the Cameroon? Um, um, situation the other day. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because as you as you as you started, right, uh, the calls were correct, right? The the VAR decisions essentially were correct. However, that that is not to negate the protest, you know, Cameroon's protest, right? To me, it's 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 not it's not it's not a matter of whether or not they were protesting a right decision. Right? To me, it was a, it was protesting. You know, I mean, I don't know. If, I don't know if the Cameroon players would say this explicitly, but it's really protesting VAR and the system of VAR, right? Mm. Football to me is a very, you know, I'm not. I'm not interested in objectivity when I watch football, right? I'm. I'm interested in in movement and motion, right? And what happens in that continuous forty five minutes of nonstop movement, right? And of course, some things are going to happen that maybe shouldn't happen, or some things might miss you know, the eye of, of, of the officials, right? But I think that's part of the beauty of the game, right? This is, you know, it's called a beautiful game because it's just very unpredictable in a lot of moments. Mm-hmm. And I think VAR and, you know, these different technological devices, um, you know, it just, it, it, it just, it just, it really reeks of, you know, surveillance to me, you know, it, it just reeks of, <laughs> you know, this like surveillance of women's bodies, right? Because I mean, obviously they had VAR in the men's World Cup, but during the women's World Cup, there's there's just this added uh, focus on VAR, right? And they're changing the rule, like in the middle of the tournament, right? And they're just, all of these, all of these manipulations and just kind of heightened attention to VAR is, I personally, is really disheartening i think for for the women's world cup you know and i think when cameroon protested i I think this is what they were protesting right this it was a protest against you know this this non-stop surveillance of women's bodies right they're they're trying to play a game right they already have the odds stacked against them right going back to our earlier points about you know lack of resources lack of funding Mm -hmm. lack of support right and so they are. So the odds are already stacked against them, right? And so to me, that protest was one of the most beautiful moments of the of the World Cup. I mean, I was I was cheering them on all the way. You know, I mean, it was almost like this this anarchist, you know, sensibility. You know, <laughs> it was very like inspiring, right? And you know, like after the goal was scored, they just they just got together, you know, as a team and disrupted the whole order of the game, right? That's mm-hmm. what I'm interested in. Is, 
is, you know, how can we, you know, play within and against the game, right? And I think this is what the Cameroon players were, were, were interested in, right? You know, how can we continue to play the game, but, but, but you know, without all of these technological uh, devices of surveillance? And I mean, you know, some people may, oh, you know, that might be a stretch, but I mean, there's people writing on this, right? You know, I mean, uh, Claudia Rankine in, 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 in her book uh, Citizen talks about, right. you know, the surveillance of Serena Williams in tennis right. and tennis kind of Hawkeye view of, 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 the, of the cameras and um, uh, Simone Brown talks about, you know, dark matters and, you know, this, mm-hmm. this idea of, of you know, uh, this constant surveillance of black people. And so again, I, I'm not sure if Cameroon players would, would, would explicitly, you know, argue this, but to me, this is what I was seeing. You know, this, this is how I read that moment. This was a, this was a resistance against, um, objectivity in football. This was a resistance against surveillance in football. Um, and I think they did a beautiful job. Unfortunately, you know, the, the referees and, you know, uh, of course, VAR didn't side with them. But I think what they did and how, how they protested that moment was incredibly inspiring. I don't think they did anything wrong. I mean, th- I mean, there are people say, oh, you know, they shouldn't have acted this way, but, you know, their protest was still legitimate. No, I, th- I think I think they acted exactly how they should have acted. I, I, you know, I think it was a perfect display of team unity. You know, people say, oh, they were, oh, you know, passionate or over-emotional. Of course, of course these are all sexist, you know, tropes to talk about, to talk about women, right? That they're right. just emotional, right? right? But no, this is the protest, right? This is the radical protest, right? And I, I think it was a, I think it was a beautiful moment. I really think it was a beautiful moment. Oh, I was gonna say, and and we all know. I like that you brought up the Serena uh, surveillance because you know these black bodies when they get upset. Well, I just, upset is a loaded term, right? When they show passion, right, it's read differently. And and Jackie Robinson, I love this Jackie Robinson quote because he talks about the same thing, right? And he says, "I learned that as long as I." appeared to ignore insult and injury i was a martyr hero to a lot of people who seemed to have sympathy for the underdog but the minute i began to answer to argue to protest the minute i began to sound off i became a swellhead a wise guy and uppity and then he says inward we're not we're not rated to say anything beyond the inward here uh, on this podcast and then he goes on to say when, when a white player did it he had spirit when a black player did it he was ungrateful and i'll start a sore head um, but you know, Jackie's saying like, they called me a pop off, a troublemaker and rouse rabble rouse at the same time. And I just got that in those comments uh, about Cameroon, right? Like that is, Absolutely. that's to me, that's, that's how you play sports, right? That's passion. That's, that's, I'm, I'm here to win. And, and as you said, I understand that we're, we're underfunded and, and sports is supposed to be all about equality. Yet you have me coming into this game where it's clearly not equal but I'm here to play. And that's to me what sports is all about. And I think Absolutely. because they're black, it gets read differently. Right. And and we have to have this conversation. So I think it's great that you, you, you push back and you did it in a way where you're talking about VAR and just all the nuances that's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah. So, I mean, David Leonard has a book, you know, playing while white, right. And right. he talks about this, right? how, how white players are, um, uh, talked about differently, right? So when they're when when you see Tom Brady, and I mean, and I mean, you know, Lou, you do a great job of calling this out on Twitter, right? When you see, you know, Tom Brady, you know, is, you know, snapping and screaming at his teammates, he sees <laughs> as a leader, right? This is a great leader, right? but you know, when you have someone like uh, you know Terrell Owens, you know, back in the days, you know, screaming at his teammates, right? He's seen as 
you know, a selfish brat. Right. And so, you know, um, all of these all of these are racially, racially charged terms. Right. And then this idea of, you know, well, there's just there's no right way to protest. Right. For black folk, like black people, you know, like it's you know, if you if you sound off and you get too loud, then you're angry, you know, and you're, you're too militant, you know. But then if you don't say anything and you just take a knee, then that's a problem as well. Right. And so, and so there's really just no way there's no right way to protest for, for, you know, for black folk. And so, you know, I'm not really interested, you know, in, you know, what they should how they should have done the pro, how they should have did this or, you know, black people have been facing, you know, discrimination and injustice forever. Right. So, you know, don't tell us how to don't tell us how to deal with that. Right. Um, I think the Cameroon players did it spot on. You know? Wow. This is a fantastic Fantastic. We didn't even get a chance to talk about Gold Cup or Copa America, which all of which we'll means... We'll have to do a part two. We'll have to do a part two. Yeah. Right. No, that's what I'm saying. That just means we get yeah. to have you on, like, yeah. again, uh, yeah, African okay. Nations Cup. Like, we got a lot of stuff. But, uh, yo, thank you for your time and your commentary. Uh, it has been a pleasure. Uh, it's, I learned a lot. Um, Lou, you want to take us out? Yeah, no, but before you go, we got to get a prediction on Friday, U.S. France, and and I got to ask the hard cutting edge question. Now I know you like to oh. count diaspora in the game. Are you counting U.S. versus France? Like who has more black players? U.S. versus France, and do you take this into consideration when you're choosing? Definitely, always. <laughs> you know, some people might call it petty, whatever. Like I don't care. Like yeah. So for one. For one, I've just never, and I mean, as 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 um, great as the U.S. women's team is, both on the field and off the field in terms of their politics, it's just very hard for for me to support the U.S. national team, men's and women's. Like, it's just, I don't, you know, it's just, you know, I mean, I wrote about this last year, right? You know, just like kind of, I, I was, it, it was very hard to see myself represented um, in the U.S. national team, right? And so... Um, but when you look at a team like France, right, both, again, men's and women's, right? There's, I mean, the team is black. I mean, it's a black team, more or less, right? I mean, of course, you know, not, you know, all black. But to answer your question, yes, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure, I, if I'm not mistaken, France has more black women on their team, right? We think of Diani, uh, Gouvan, Nikita Paris, right? Uh, Renard, right? Wendy Renard on France. Um, you know, and these are and these are players that have incredibly important roles on the team, right? Um, with the US, you have Crystal Dunn, right? And, you know, she, you know, I mean, again, even the way they treated Crystal Dunn, right? Like they they kind of delayed her 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 participation on the national team, the same way they delayed uh, Jessica McDonald's uh, participation on the national team. Um, so there's just this there's just this you know there's this interesting racial component of the U.S. national team that I just it's just very hard for me to get behind. Um, you know, but then you have players like Megan Rapinoe, who just who just is an incredible you know ally and incredible you know advocate for you know, for, for, you know, for racial and gender and sexual and, and sexual justice, right. Where, you know, in 2016, she was the only one taking a knee, you know, right. and, and today exactly. still not, you know, she, you know, I mean, and so well, in response to Rapino taking a knee, then the U S Federation changed the rules and said, you must stand for the U S for the, for the national anthem. And then Rapino just responded, okay, well, I'll stand, but I'm not going to put my heart, I'm not going to put my hand over my heart and I'm not going to sing. 
right? And so there's, you know, again, the politics of the U.S. women's national team, I just, I, I'm so behind. I support 100%. But I'm, there's something about the racial makeup and, and just just the racial structure of U.S. men's and women's teams that I, I just cannot get behind. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely rooting for France, <laughs> to say all that. Um, and I have France, I mean, I have France and Italy in the finals. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of Sarah Gama on the yeah. Italian team. Um, so I have Italy and France, and I have France winning the whole thing. Oh, Derek, what about you? Um, I still think that the U.S. team is still the best team, although I'm a little nervous. These last couple, you know, after the 13 goal, they yeah, haven't yeah. looked great. Um, you know, I, I think they're missing, you know, they play so, this is very technical, but they play so direct a lot of times, and um, and sometimes it's easy to defend, and that allows teams that are well-organized, like France, um, mm. Sweden in the past, they've been able. If you if you can be organized defensively, you can really kind of hold them at bay, and then you can kind of counterattack. And so they're kind of always suspect to those things. But I still think they're pretty they're pretty talented. Um, they're just deep too. That's the other part is, you know, they could put out a completely different eleven and probably compete and win one nothing, two nothing, you know. And so that's a that's a different kind of level of talent that they have over almost every team in the tournament. For sure. For sure. For sure. All right, all right. So, so Derek's going U.S. Jermaine's going France. I guess I'm the tar- tiebreaker here, and 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 I'm going nothing. I'm just watching a great game, guys. That's all I want to see. Uh, <laughs> just a great game. Just just a great game. Not a, a great game. Not to start a, decided by VAR though, and and not decided yeah, by like a kick in a penalty kick in the 95th minute on a suspect yeah. foul, right? Like just. Just let them play the way people are supposed to, you know, finish out games and play, and, and, and I'll be satisfied. So there you go. That's all I got. All right, then, on that note, peace. Peace. And thanks peace. for coming on, Jermaine. Yep. Thank you all for inviting me. I really appreciate it. No, no problem, brother. <laughs>